I told Spike, I said, this is going to be an American movie classic. He goes, I know it is. He goes, so you get it. I said, oh, 100%. Huh. This is, this is going to be off the charts. And I said, oh, my God. I said, what a, what a grace is Tarakal look. And he goes, what did you just say? I said, don't let the accent fool you, bitch. And he just starts laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Hi everybody, I'm Bryn Jonathan Butler and this is Tourist Information, Outsiders Looking In and Insiders Looking Out from the World of Boxing. Uh, for our inaugural interview, I spoke with Rosie Perez just after Muhammad Ali's death on June 3rd, 2016. Um, she'd just written a memoir called Handbook for an Unpredictable Life, How I Survived Sister Renata and My Crazy Mother and Still Came Out Smiling. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and I've been a huge fan of Rosie Perez for a long time as an actress, an activist, just seeing her for the first time dancing at the beginning of Do the Right Thing. I mean, just an incredible presence and spirit. And this book kind of gave a new look into all the things that she's overcome to become the person she is. And it's a very moving book, and she's a very beloved figure in the world of boxing. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. place I wanted to start was um, as a quote by George Bernard Shaw that is most people go to their graves with their music still inside them mm. I just wondered if you feel like the world has heard your music because you just seem to have just been all over the place and expressing yourself in a way that's been really heavily validated and and for when you're in that school when you're you're three years that home rather uh, St. Joe's when you're three years old I wonder if you ever imagined that the world would have a chance to hear your music the way it has. I did imagine it. You did? Yes, I did. I, I did. Um, even as a, as a young kid, I, I knew that I was going to contribute something great to the world. And I was chastised for it. I was ridiculed for it. You know, that's, that's part of the reason why I love figures like Muhammad Ali to have the audacity to say, I'm the greatest before he was the greatest. Y you know, when you step into the ring, you have to have belief that you're going to be champion of the world. You know, and I guess, you know, growing up on boxing and sitting around a, a wooden encased television, you know, that, that sunk in. But I, I honestly feel that that's who I, who I was. And I, and, I, and I know that it came from just that small amount of time of love that I got from my father's sister, my aunt, um, God rest her soul. And, you know, uh, so yes, I, I, I knew it. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew it. And um, it made me an easy target when I was young. It made me an, an easy target because a lot of the younger kids around me in the home didn't understand it. And the nuns, not all of them, but a majority of the nuns in that Catholic home for displaced, unwanted, abandoned, um, orphaned children, um, they were bothered by it, you know? Because, you know, with, with that religion, it's about conformity. And my spirit wanted to stand out. And it wasn't 
it wasn't cockiness. It really wasn't. It was confidence. And um, and when I was younger, I was I just I was so confused by the backlash from it. I just didn't understand it. You know, I didn't understand why, why, why doesn't everyone feel that they're special? Why, why don't I have a right to feel special? I don't get it. I don't get it. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like you were special in ways that were very difficult from the beginning by virtue of you. You have 10 siblings in all? Yes, half. I, I, I don't have any whole brothers or sisters. So they're all half brothers and sisters. Yeah, that was one dynamic in your story that, that I found very touching. I, I also have two half-brothers, but in your circumstance, um, being the product of an affair, um, that you, you, again, the backlash, you, fo you face so much displacement from your own family that was, you know, for a child, I just couldn't imagine how confusing and harmful that must, and traumatic, that must have been for you. From, from the beginning, once you recognized your place in that order. Right. It was dramatic and it, and, it, and it was very, very hurtful. And, you know, um, you know I'm, uh, I've been in therapy off and on for probably the past, I would say, 15 years. And my, my uh, psychiatrist told me something really wonderful. She said, you know, Rose, you're, when you first came to me, you were just treading water in the Atlantic Ocean all by yourself. And I promised you that that ocean would one day become just a puddle. And you would be standing on a bridge that you will build all by yourself, that you will build all by yourself, and you will be able to stand over there and see that puddle and say, wow, that used to be an ocean. There used to be an ocean of confusion, of hurt, pain and depression and doubt because um, there's no greater, greater crime toward a child than, of, than that of abandoning that child, of not loving that child, not being a supportive and, and a supportive and loving parent. You know, you you don't you don't offer that to a child. You have no right having children. Yeah, you have absolutely no right to having children, because although I have overcome so much, and I'm a happy individual, that puddle still exists. It still exists, and the greatest gift that my psychiatrist gave me was to say, it'll probably never evaporate fully throughout your lifetime, and you got to make peace with that. Have you made peace with that? I've made peace with it, thank God. It took a very, very long time. It took a very long time because I was always angry about that. I was very, very angry about it. You know, why, why, why did these two people have sex and, and recklessly and, 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 and have me if either of them were not going to take responsibility for me? You know, and, and you really think about it, it goes on. It's been going on and it still goes on. You know, like seriously, and I know people always said, oh, if you if you need a license to drive a car, you should have a license to be a parent. And other people go, no, that's completely wrong. No, no, it's not completely wrong. <laughs> you know, you know, because being responsible for a vehicle pales in comparison 
to being responsible for another human being, an infant, a child, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so, yeah, so it, it, it was hard for me. You know, it, it still boggles my mind. Even though I have gotten over it, it's still that puddle, that puddle still there like, why? I'm glad I'm here, you know? I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I'm making my time on this, on this planet count. Like Ali says, don't count the days, make the days count. Mm-hmm. Um, but I truly, and I write it in the book, I truly, truly feel that if I had different circumstances, if I was that wanted child, um, if I was that child who was loved and supported, I think I would have been even better than I am now. And I know it. And I cannot stand when people say, but aren't you happy of what happened to you as a child because it made you who you are today? I said, that's validating the abuse. No, I'm not happy what happened to me. You, you, you know what I mean? Because with this toughness comes a darkness. Yeah. A real deep darkness. I could do without the darkness. I could have done without the years of depression that I had to fight through and then it made me tougher. Because sometimes the toughness that was created out of that held me back. You know? That's where me and Mike Tyson understand each other. You know what I'm saying? It's like... Damn. And I remember I'm telling my husband one day, you know, I'm having an anxiety attack and he goes, he goes, calm down. And I go, you think I like being like this? You think I'm, I'm like this on purpose? No, no. You know what I mean? So it's like I could have done without it. I really could have. On, on a positive side about it, and it's not to validate the abuse by any stretch, um, in talking to people about sitting down with you, what I get is just the unwanted woesy from her childhood is somebody who's tremendously loved right now and a lot of people mm-hmm. care about you and say things like i love her i love i love where she stands in terms of and it's it's so clear to me it's on it, it's on the strength of your ability to care about people to get past your own hurt to 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 tap into the the hurt of other people those who are vulnerable those who experience things like you did, some people would experience those things and shut out everybody else. They'd just be in a survival mode. You clearly are somebody that has reached people by caring about them and their wounds, which, which shows me that you were able to not, again, not to dismiss what you've been through, but that ability is something that I and always, and, and everybody, everybody who's reached out to me when I mentioned talking to you is something that they connect to very deeply. Wow, I didn't. I never heard that before. That's very nice to hear. Um, Just a different pivot from what you were saying. I, yeah, and I appreciate that. It's nice to hear. And um, then again, I think I, I, I still would have been that person. I still would have been that person. Um, and while you were saying that, I was just thinking about my aunt who... who raised me in the beginning and then continued to raise me after I got out of the system. Um, She was a very empathetic, loving, and giving person. And that was my benchmark of what a human being should be, right? And then also with my father. My father was an extremely loving, yet very, very flawed man. And he apologized for not stepping up to the plate. 
when I was younger. That, I think that allowed a lot of healing and a lot of openness for me as well, you know. And um, gosh, that you just blew my mind with that. Um, I would, I would just, I don't I'm know. I'm shocked that you don't see that with the, really? the love that people have for you. I'm shocked. I, I, you know what? I, I, I honestly, I just, I mean, I feel embarrassed hearing it. it just, um, I didn't. Well, no, I did. I did. I, I didn't know that. I just, maybe they, they seem. I, I am an empathetic person. You know, I, I am, and um. You know, and I. I do reach out to people um, because I know what it feels to hurt. I know how it feels to hurt. And I don't like seeing anyone hurt, um, you know, and, you know, emotionally and mentally, uh, physically, you know, outside of the ring. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but also I think, I think um, maybe part of it is that my enthusiasm for life because when I was in the home, it felt like I was serving time, yeah. you know, and I had to make that time count. You know, one nun, uh, Sister Margaret Francis, she, she gave me that golden nugget, you know, do everything that you can to get out of this place, study hard, put your head down, do everything right, make this time count. And I was like, wow. Um, you know, so when I did get out of that situation and I did work hard, and I was completely dedicated to having a happy life. And for me, success meant happiness. Success meant a roof over my head and financial stability. It didn't mean fortune and fame. It really didn't. It was just that, those simple things. And, you know, while I was obtaining it, and then when I once did obtain it, I, there's just joy pouring out of me. I'm just happy to be here. You know what I mean? Because I, I know I could have took a wrong turn yeah. with all the shit that happened to me. I could have clearly went in a different direction. You know? That's why I love boxers so much. Majority of boxers come from shit lives. Yeah. You know? Can I say that? Okay. Yeah, Majority right. of boxers, you know, you know they, they come from poverty or they come from some type of abusive um, situation. Um, they feel that their resources are, are limited, so they turn to boxing, you know? And boxing's not easy. No. It's not easy. You have to give 110% of your life. You have to be completely dedicated. Mayweather, you know, hard work, dedication. That That's the cornerstone of being a champion, you know? And, you know, and when they win that belt, they're so happy, and I just feel like I won! You know, dun, 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 you know, yeah. it's just like, yay, I'm happy. You know, and I, I have my moments, the depression, that puddle kind of starts to steam up and, you know, depression comes and stuff like that. And, and I just take a deep breath, you know, and I call my doctor or I tell my husband or my cousin Sixto, or, you know, I talk it out and, and, I, and I just remember where I am now. And everything is good. Life is good. So I think maybe that's what they see too. Hmm. Well, and, and <clears throat> I found for me the most moving part of your your memoir was was your aunt, and and I thought you you really captured, I guess, the struggle that you're kind of getting at in terms of she's going to to see you. I guess I should frame it a little bit better. But you were taken at three, 
to, to go to St. Joseph's, right? Yes. So you're taking it three from your aunt, who you were living with at the time in Brooklyn, and <clears throat> you're in a completely Dickensian reality. Yeah. With vicious, cruel, heartless nuns, for the most part, who are beating you or forbidding you from speaking your language. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you describe being slapped, having your head slammed. I mean, things... My father's a child protection lawyer, so when I'm reading oh, this, wow. I'm just thinking all of these people should be in jail for yes. what they're doing to you. You're not, you know, bedwetting does not deserve a beating or these almost like stress positions where you're forced to stand for an hour. Yeah. And really, like, I'm just wondering, like, when people are under the auspices of representing God and Jesus, mm -hmm. are doing inflicting such harm on you, and you're not doing anything wrong. Like you're, you're three years old, um, and you've lost this guardian that you had that you obviously felt this huge bond with. Yeah. Um, you still thought that somehow you could get out and, and make a life for yourself, even in those early moments? Yes. Yes, I did, 100%. You know, it, it, you know, I, and I really think it was because those three years, my aunt, who I thought was my mother, loved the hell out of me. Loved the hell out of me. And I didn't, I didn't understand until I was older that one of my cousins told me, you know, who I thought were my sisters, mommy always m made us made us take care of you. Mommy always told us, don't ever treat rose badly don't ever hit her don't ever say a mean thing to her just love her love her love her you know and so <clears throat> that makes a child feel special and you know so i knew what was good and i was a very very bright child so i knew this was i was living in absurdity yeah. this isn't right i shouldn't be here and I used to look at the other little kids like, how come nobody else is angry? How come nobody else feels like you shouldn't be here? You know, I don't deserve you slapping me in the face. That's why I would slap them back. Yeah. You know, I had no violence in my body. <clears throat> and it came out because I was like, how dare you hit me? Even at three years old, yeah. I swung back, you know, and, and you know, and it, and it, it, it I'm so glad you said that they should have all been arrested because they should have been. <laughs> they should have been. Do you know you're the first person that has said that? They should have all been arrested. You know, um, the only people who can legally be abused in society are kids. We oh, gosh. We allow wow. parents and teachers to legally assault children. Yeah. Why? Why are they immune from those laws that protect everybody else and make it a crime? Never understood it. Yeah. Never understood it. Yeah, and I hate when people say, oh, you know, back in the day, you were able to hit your kid. You were able to spank your kid. You can't do that now. Well, you're damn right you can't, yeah, you know, you, <laughs> you know, you. but the problem is, is that most children who are being beaten today don't understand that or don't have or are too fearful to tell somebody, Yeah. you know, who's going to protect them. <laughs> it's so. 
your award of the state and the property of the Catholic Church for yeah. for eleven years. You're in there till you're fourteen. Is that right? Yeah, back and forth between uh, between upstate New York in the homes and uh, and then uh, Williamsburg South and Bushwick in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So like I had uh, two feet. You know, I had uh, you know foot in two different worlds. I mean, yeah, it was just weird. Well, and, and I mean, I haven't I haven't moved to tears reading much in my life. I read a lot, and the description of your aunt, the first visit that she had to visit you, where you are fighting that, you know, I guess, am I going to be abandoned again, or it's yeah. too harmful to drop the guard? And the way in which she totally understands that, it seems, like mm-hmm. you write it beautifully, of her trying to show that love, but also respectful of the vulnerability of her position not to be able to adopt you. Mm-hmm. She recognizes that, which you don't at, right. at the time. And she's not forcing you to show, she's not forcing you to look after her, I guess. She's kind of letting you come to her, but yeah. it just seems so painful. Um, I don't know, I was trying to get into your mind with that and also into hers, because it seemed like it was a formative moment of the positive things that led you out. You know, this springboard that you have that's so unusual, <laughs> uh, where you go into all these other places, but um, what was the worst moment of 11 years being in that home for you where you came closest to giving up hope I think two there were two instances one was that meeting that you just spoke about because it's kind of like you know when you when somebody goes to an animal rescue shelter and rescues a dog and the dog doesn't even want to come out of the cage that it's locked in because they don't trust that hand because hands have have been to you know their detriment and hit hidden you know sick people uh doing harm to the these you know um helpless animals and you know even when you take the dog into your arms and you're loving it the dog is just shivering and you know, some dogs will bite and, you know, or some dogs will just have their tail between their legs and you just don't trust it. You just don't trust it. You know, a lot of rescue animals try to run away and people go, why are they, you know, you know. And so even though that was a beautiful moment, at the time, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. It was very, very confusing. And it wasn't until she started singing that everything clicked and even though I was happy to sing with her I do remember I was still in pain and I was still fearful I didn't trust it and it and it further depressed me but yet it also gave me a strength to know that there is something else than this home so it was a very confusing time. It was a very confusing time. And the other time was when I got transferred to the group home. And that was supposed to be a good thing for us kids in the institution. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. um, you know, and the group home was just, you know, you put a group of girls who are emotionally 
traumatized and but yet have a higher have a high intelligence level that's that's a that's a very dangerous cocktail that you're you're mixing together there and and the group home quote unquote parents that was supposed to take care of us majority of them were just screw ups they were just terrible they i don't understand why they were there um you know and um it was the first and only time in my life that i contemplated suicide and that was all i think at 12 at 12 years old 12 years old where i locked myself in the closet knew that everyone was looking for me and just felt like i'm going to stay in this closet and just die it'll be better it you know the pain is just too great just let me die god just let me die and what got me through it through it was the commodores remembering the commodores song zoom mm-hmm. you know i may be such a fool, foolish dreamer but i don't care cuz i know that my happiness is laying somewhere out there somewhere mm-hmm. and it says oh zoom i'd like to fly away um and that became my prayer that became my prayer and you know my the whole time in the catholic church with all those nuns never brought him to religion believe it or not didn't buy it for a minute thought it was all hogwash um but i remember in that closet i saw a ray of light c- come through and i said god if this is you i'm giving you one last chance and you better come through damn it you know the person i got you know um i think that those were two of my darkest times being a ward of the state those those two moments they were just really really dark. and that i mean that surpasses the beatings i would get from my mother on home visits from her it surpassed you know my 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 half siblings trying to molest me it was just the first one just fear and the second one just complete despair hmm. you know so those were the, those were the low points hmm. i mean i was surprised because i i knew about your odd kind of uh, six degrees of separation with all of these things in the entertainment industry but i wonder and i i've heard you be annoyed when people talk about the way you dance um, like when I guess the obvious thing is is do the do the right thing the opening sequence, but that wasn't where you were sort of discovered. It was by Don Don Cornelius in a club in Los Angeles. But I'm wondering if all of these things that you've been through, the passion and the anger and the darkness, informed the way in which you expressed. I mean, like like with boxers, Mike Tyson. I asked him what what were you fighting for, and he got really upset. And he broke down crying and he just said, I was fighting for my mother never saw me own anything of value hmm. that she didn't accuse me of stealing. And she was dead before I achieved anything. Like she was right. I was stealing everything that had value. Hmm. Um, so I was fighting to make a dead woman proud of me. Hmm. And with you, dancing seems the first place where the world heard, heard from you. Hmm. And so I'm wondering, what were you expressing when you were dancing that, that you think caught people's eye? What made you stand out with that expression of, of your life up to that point? You were a young kid. 
the joy of life because as I write in the book before the home when I'm in the loving arms of my aunt in the loving home that she created you know we were so dirt poor we were on the waiting list for the projects that's poor <laughs> you know yeah you know we're like oh project heat yeah something to you know live for um but <laughs> my aunt got rest of soul and my cousins they still talk about it they said as soon as they laid eyes on me in the maternity ward my legs were kicking my legs were moving my arms were moving and that when I was an infant in the crib, all I wanted to do was hear music and dance. Mm -hmm. And that when I was one years old, I told my aunt, I said, I remember when I was one years old, I was in a crib and I used to suck my thumb and dance. She goes, hi, my goodness, how you remember that? And so I had the music in me. I had the spirit of expression through dance in me as an infant, you know, as a toddler, just, it was always there. And my my cousin Millie told me that, and my cousin Titi, God rest her soul, they said that if I didn't play, I'm a soul man, if they didn't play, I'm a soul man, over and over and over for me until I exhausted myself literally to sleep, I would just keep screaming until they played the record again. And once they dropped that needle, they said I would just start moving and dancing. And just holding on with one hand to the crib and doing the hitchhike with, with my thumb with the other and then taking a break and sucking my thumb, still dancing with my feet up and down. So for me dancing and do the right thing, for me dancing at a nightclub, to get noticed at a nightclub by a talent scout from, from Don Cornelius, they saw my joy. They saw my release, you know? That's what they saw. They saw that passion of, yay, life. Yeah. You know, there was no camera on me at that nightclub in Los Angeles at Florentine Gardens. You know what I mean? I was ready for my close-up and I didn't even know it. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just, I, I just felt so free. I felt free, I was that kid. I was that baby. Dancing the Sam and Dave. That's pure, unadulterated joy. And that's what they saw. You know, in, in this YouTube video that has gone viral for years now with Soul Train, I initially was so embarrassed by it. I look at it now, and I go, wow, that was something. You know, I really didn't understand that I was on television. I knew I was on television, but I didn't understand what that meant. And I was so happy to be on Soul Train. I couldn't believe I was on Soul Train. You know, the, you know, kid from the home, a kid from Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, I'm in Los Angeles and I'm on television. Are you kidding me? You know, so and at the time, sadly to say, I was still a virgin. So I didn't understand my sexuality. So I'm humping and pumping the air thinking I'm being sexy. And I'm looking like, you know, a hoe on heels, you know. <laughs> You know, and, and it was just me having fun because what people don't see is that as soon as I would come down the Soul Train line and I'd walk off camera, me and my college buddies, my girlfriends, would crack up, you know, because I was being a little bit campy there. You know what I mean? I was like, yeah, look at what I did. Oh, 
that was funny, that's funny. We would high five each other. And the other Soul Train dancers were like, she's so weird. You know, because they were, they were taking it seriously. Like, I'm going to show the world I'm a great dancer. Me, I'm going, I'm going down the Soul Train line. Ha, look at me, look at me, look at me. You know, so it was different. It was different. So it's joy. That's what that is, joy. And it's also me, just like boxers, showing off. Yeah. Showing off. I'm in my zone. I'm in my element. I know exactly how to do this. You know what I mean? It's, it's you know, it's Mayweather when he just kept taunting uh, Canelo. Like, you think you're younger? You think you're more powerful than me? Like, eh, take that. Take that. Take that. Take that. Nope. Can't hit me. Nope. I'm in my zone. I'm going to beat you. Right. You know, and, and it's, you know, you know, and that's what, that's, that's what, to me, that's what music and dance is all about. Just joy joy I, there's no angst behind it if there's any angst or if there's anything that alludes to what mike tyson told you that comes through my acting hmm. that comes through my acting when you see me acting especially specifically in dr dramatic roles um and it scared me one time with this film called fearless peter weir i've seen it yeah it scared me that i could go that dark it really and it was just a little bit too easy it was a little bit too easy, and I, I fell into a deep depression after that movie. And the way the nastiness behind Mike Tyson's blows and the anger and the madness behind it, how he could quickly demolish his opponents and go to that dark side where he could say, I I'm going to eat you and your kids. I understand that. And, and it's sad, and it's sad. And, and it could come out in my acting very easily because I, unfortunately, I've seen evil. I've seen people be at their worst. I've seen sadism at its worst. And it was depressing to me that I could tap into that and that I could understand it, you know? So, um, the sadism from your childhood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I see it. I get it. You know, and I always used to fight against it, you know, and my activism is like, don't let you, don't let these evil people win. And, you know, this is wrong. This is wrong. And then be able to tap into that is, is sick. Mm -hmm. It's, it's sick. It really is sick. It's unfortunate, you know, and, um, you know, but that's, I think that's when people say, gosh, you're so fiery on camera. You know, it's, it's me unleashing. It's me. That's my payback. Hmm. You know? Well, that's what I wondered is this girl who's fighting against this system where she has no power. And, you know, there are a lot of fighters that left their best fights in the gym. Right. And, <laughs> and could never perform right. under the lights. But at that moment, where you have your opportunity, like, there's nobody on the screen but you. You know, all these other girls, like you're saying, who are very talented people who've been found and stuff, but, like, who, who is this person is kind of when you come out. And I just wondered if you channeled all of that that you've been through to just own it, you know? Yeah. Take yeah. the life you wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, even in Do the Right Thing, where I'm... Um, cursing out Spike's character. 
you know saying i'm tired of your shit you know and, and the head is going and the my my forehead is scrawled and you just feel the venom coming out of me and stuff you know because when spike goes you know this is a girl that i go oh i know this girl you don't have to explain this character to me i got it yeah yeah but let's where i said no i got it you know, and then when he yelled, cut, I remember he went, cut, oh, 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 and he's laughing. And I didn't understand what was happening to me. Hmm. Because I still felt it. I felt the fire, and it's like, you know, my, I'm breathing heavy, and my chest feels real, real hot, and everything. And I remember he went to hug me, and I shrugged his hug off, and I went, excuse me. Hmm. And I walked away. And I remember hearing someone goes, oh my gosh, she has such a nasty attitude. And all I wanted to was punch that bitch in the face. <laughs> I swear to God. And I turned and I looked at her and she got so scared and I caught myself. And I remember saying to myself, don't go there, Rose. Save it for the camera. And I didn't really understand what acting was about at that time. Hmm. But just just clicked and I walked it off I walked it off and I came back and he goes you ready I went mm-hmm mm-hmm well how did that opening sequence how where did that come from and do the right thing that opening sequence was it was originally supposed to be a different song and funny enough it was this uh, Sam and Dave song initially hmm. excuse me and then he, uh, excuse me, changed it to another song, and that wasn't right. And we had all this choreography with this wonderful choreographer, Otis Salid. And then at the last minute, Spike goes, this is wrong, this is wrong. And he goes, I'm calling Chuck D. I go, public enemy? He goes, yeah, I'm going to ask him to do me a favor. He calls Chuck D, we get the song right away, like that. And so we have to hurry up and put something together. Well, the choreography did not fit that music, didn't fit Fight the Power. And then Spike Lee shows up on set with the boxing outfit. I went, oh, that's like Ali. And he goes, what do you know about Ali? <laughs> and I started laughing. And, um, and he said, I want you, I want you to just go out there and give it everything, give it everything. So half of the choreography was, was made up in just a few hours. So one, I wasn't really sure of it. So that's where you feel my nervousness and my concentration. Um, and what else you see is that Spike made me do that stupid freaking number for eight straight hours. I think I only had two breaks. I threw my elbow out. I had tennis elbow at the end of it by throwing so many punches. So when I see that, all I see is the tired sloppiness in my execution and it always bothered me. And you know, and Spike was like, now we got it, now we got it. And um, he goes, now you look exhausted, now you look tired, now you look fed up, now you are embodying the spirit of this movie. I go, that's why you made me do it for eight fucking hours? You could have just asked me. Why didn't you just tell me that? And he starts laughing like you're laughing now. I go, son of a bitch, motherfucker. And I remember just storming off with ice on my elbow. <laughs> you know, and, and people go, how's the greatest dance scene ever for opening of a movie? You know, <laughs> so it's just like, that's the, see, that's the, that's the part of it I could have done without from the abuse because that's the asshole in me that comes out because of the abuse. You know what I mean? I could do without that. You know, and, and uh, 
the premiere of the movie, you know, I gotcha. Oh my God, the audience went, ah! And I remember I, I, I got scared. I like jumped in my seat and was like, what? I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't get it. I was like, wow. And Spike's like, I told you, I told you. <laughs> the film, when I read the script, I told Spike, I said, this is gonna be an American movie classic. He goes, I know it is. He goes, so you get it? I said, oh, 100%. This is, this is gonna be off the charts. And I said, oh my God. I said, what a, what a grace historical look. And he goes, what did you just say? I said, don't let the accent fool you, bitch. And he just starts <laughs> laughing. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, yeah, but I, I did know it. I, I, I knew it. I knew it was going to be big. Because even though it was a satire on what was going on, still nobody was addressing it yeah. in the way that he did. You know, and it was very timely. And it's now it's a timeless piece, Right. unfortunately. Right. Did you, did you feel... Like, I find it interesting today we're starting to see a shift in what's acceptable in terms of female beauty in society where it's moving away from say this Pamela Anderson kind of thing to where there's an embrace of diversity being beautiful um, and it seems like with, within Latina actresses you were certainly like a turning point or, or I, don't, I don't know who you like who did you see when you were a kid that was at the movies where a Latina was not a stereotype or you know who did I see as a Latina? Well, first of all, I'm a New Yorker, so when we were able to go see certain plays or what have you, or even just seeing the commercials for plays, you know, you would see Raul Julia, you would see the posters for Three Penny Opera, you would see Cheetah Rivera, you know, Bye Bye Birdie, you would see the old things, and, yeah. and um, you know, uh, her in the... Um, in the uh, Bob Fosse, mm -hmm. you know, plays and stuff like that. So those were really positive uh, images. But when I got into the to, into into Hollywood and I got into the, I was very very unapologetic, and that rubbed people the wrong way. I was unapologetic in the way that I looked, in the way that I dressed, the way that I sound sounded, and the way that I conducted myself, um, because the judgment that was being hurled at me reminded me of the judgment that the kids in the in the home in the Catholic home would receive from the regular kids outside of the home because yeah. we had we had to go to outside public school the ones that were really really advanced they they allowed us to go to outside school so that we can uh, assimilate uh, to the real world um, and the judgment that were that was hurled at us kids was was excruciatingly painful um so jump cut to being in movies and someone asking me to get a nose job someone asking me to dye my hair blonde all to pass someone asking me to get rid of my accent um someone asking me to stop being so funny stop being so loud and i go no no and then here I am in short shorts and, you know, wearing a bra. This is a prima donna. I mean, a, a pre-Madonna, not yeah, pre-Madonna. Yeah. Pre-Madonna, uh, the recording artist Madonna. You know, um, 
you know, the, the, the starlets weren't dressing like that. They were dressing in red carpet gowns, and I'm showing up with combat boots, fishnet stockings, and, and satin short shorts with a bra on. And my hair tousled, not long and with extensions. It was tousled up in my hair. And I was like, I'm the cutest thing on earth. What? You know what I mean? And it, and it, and it rubbed. It was surprising to me that it rubbed people the wrong way, specifically the Latino community. Hmm. You know, and I, and I learned that, that they've been sailing through the water towards their victory line in acceptance in Hollywood. Um... And here I come, rocking the boat, saying, why do we have to go to their finish line? Why don't we create our own finish line? Right. Right. Why do we have to follow that path in the water? I don't get it. You know? And the struggles that you've made that allow, that has allowed somebody like me to come on the scene, you should be celebrating me. Because I am the result I am the product of your fight. Yeah. How come you're not celebrating that? You know, and it, and, it, and it was weird to me. And I had to take pause and become very empathetic towards those people. Because when I really came to understand the limitations that people of color have to endure in the entertainment industry, I understood that they had open wounds. Hmm. They had open wounds where there was like crusty pus and blood surrounding them. And those wounds were still sore and bubbling with infection, you know? And they didn't know how to close those wounds up yeah. because they still wanted to reach that finish line. They still wanted the brass ring, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but I was always the kid that got off the merry-go-round. Hmm. Yeah, I'm tired of reaching for that. Let me get out. Let me go on another ride. You know? So. You had that. Look, I spent a lot of time in Cuba. One of the things that interested me there was <clears throat> just no advertising. Women aren't told to look a certain way, and they don't have to feel ugly in every manifestation of being a woman, any size that they are, or age that they are, or whatever. And men are not told what's beautiful, so they get to decide for themselves, too. Right. And what happens? Women feel really confident in every manifestation. This of is in Cuba? Yeah. Oh, wow. Because it's a society that's allowed to be organic. Right. Because it's not marketed. Mm -hmm. Well, market, Marketing is predicated on making everybody feel like shit and the way out is to buy something. Right. Which is not going to fix it. Right. So I like that about you, that you, you became this kind of gateway drug for a lot of people to go, that's really hot. Why, why am I not seeing more of that? that something's different. Like, why is it such a narrow idea of what's beautiful and everything else is ugly or not acceptable? And you, know, you just seem to come out right away with this sort of confidence in owning it um, that I think, I don't know, may have paved the way for a lot of other, other kinds of looks to be accepted or yeah. difference. Well, thank you about that. I have to give a lot of credit to um, my aunt and my cousins who I thought were my sisters. Um, because they were badasses. They had style. We didn't have a pot to piss in, but they had style. Mm -hmm. You know, and they, their hair was already, always did, done. <laughs> you know, and whether they rocked it naturally or they had the perm look or what have you. Mm -hmm. It was like, I, I used to say, 
my cousins would walk down the block and they had their own theme music falling behind them, you know? And <clears throat> and it was hard and it was hitting and it was sexy and they were so popular, you know? And, and you know, and I'm from Brooklyn, so a fat ass was a good thing. Yeah. You know, you go to L.A. and it's like, that's pretty, she ain't got no ass, you know? Mm. <laughs> You know, and here I am. I was like, no, I don't want to wear, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, these these stockings to hold in my butt. My butt is fly. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. No, I'm not gonna wear that. No, I'm gonna wear this. No, I like this tight. You know, no, I like. You know, it's like, and and um, I think it really came from them. And then it's also also like when you know when you're living in Brooklyn, it's just you're so insulated in kind of a way. Not now with the gentrification, you know. Yeah. But back then, you were very, very insulated, so your block was your world, right? Yeah. Well, and, and like another platform for what we're talking about, like going back a little bit, was within Living Color getting hired as a choreographer. Yeah. Um, you know, like I'm on the West Coast in in Vancouver, and I've never seen women like this. They don't exist where I live, and and all my friends. It's sort of like who's going to be the first one to say like these girls are beautiful and and wow is there more of this that we can kind of explore in film and music and and etc and you're kind of at the heart of that like in harnessing what they're expressing with the choreography i knew it was going to be big i knew exactly what i wanted and the costume designer for uh in living color michelle cole I thought I was gonna have a problem with her because all the other departments, when I got to Living Color, just they just they didn't want me there. They liked the prior choreographer who was corny as hell. They were dancing like solid gold dancers, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and I, you know, I had an attitude problem, you know. And uh, when I met with Michelle Cole, I said, "This is how I want them to look," and she just looked at me. I said. I want them to express a certain unapologetic sexuality. So I want it to be hard and feminine and sexy. Hmm. And I want them in shorts. And I want them to show their bodies. And when they're dancing, it's not going to be overtly sexy. It's going to be some hard core dancing. Not like real hardcore hip-hop in New York. They don't have that ability. <laughs> but I'm going to bring them as close to that as possible. So they can't be in high heels. They can't be in colorful, neon-looking, corny-ass sneakers. You know what I mean? They got to look like they just stepped out of the club. And she was like, okay. And she came up with the look. You know, Keenan let me pick all the music. And, you know, when I told him, I said, I think you should have hip-hop backs on. All right, go ahead and book them. That was your idea? That was my idea. That was my idea. And, um... You know, so I booked those acts. So I knew exactly what I was doing. And, and, and what the clarity for me was the year prior of going on the road with different various hip-hop acts and seeing that America was ready for it. They were actually thirsty for it. You know, you go to Wichita, Kansas, and you see every color of the rainbow lining up to see LL Cool J. Oh, yeah, America was ready for it, you know, and I knew it. And I knew it, and I was like, I'm gonna give it to them as hard as I can, you know. I'm not gonna water this shit down any further, you know. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like those girls couldn't dance like Fatima, 
you know, or big les, you know, the girls that, you know, or, or you know, well, one of the girls I got to hire, Josie Harris, uh, when we were looking for new flight girls, I got to hire her. She was the real deal, you know, but those girls, you know, like I write in the book, my inspiration, because it was, it was like hitting my head on the wall trying to get them to do like real hardcore, real true hip hop, and they couldn't do it. They just looked corny. And I was watching Viva Las Vegas, and I saw Ann Margaret, and I was like, that's it? Hmm. What if Ann Margaret was doing hip hop? How would that look? And that's what I did, you know? That's funny. That's, that's, that's really the Fly Girls in a nutshell. Hmm. Well, and you include your memoir, and I'm not trying to stir up any shit, but you, you include encountering J-Lo for the first time. She's getting her first big, big break. Right. Um, and you singled her out yeah. right away, right? You, yeah. you, you found her, um, said she's got something. They didn't want her. Right. You bring her back. Yeah. Um, did you have any idea with her, like being somebody yourself who exploded from unusual circumstances for the industry, did you did you see that look in her eye? Yes. Yeah. Yes. She wasn't a great dancer. She got better. That's why they didn't want to hire her initially. And you know, she was she was bigger than the other girls. But I saw it. And we saw we saw thousands of girls that day, hmm. and she stood out. What made her stand out? Well, she looks very different now, but still, back then, she had a beauty that you couldn't turn away from. Hmm. You just kept staring at her, because it all didn't fit together in a weird way, hmm. but yet the beauty just was popping off her, it was just glowing. And she had a look in her eye, like, look at me, hmm. you know? And she was trying to be nonchalant about it, but it was like she would look away and then look up at the person she figured out who was in power. Hmm. And it was like, look at me. And she caught my eye and I looked at her and I said, I'll give you that. Hmm. And I knew, and I remember telling Keenan, that's a star. Right there, that, she's a star, and she wants it bad. And I understood that. I wasn't ambitious in the way that Jennifer was. But I did have ambition. Yeah. You know, I had ambition to have a full life. It wasn't to be famous. It wasn't to have fortune. It was to just be casual. The way I grew up, I didn't, I didn't have the right to be casual. I couldn't afford to be casual. Yeah. And I wanted the luxury of being casual, and that was my ambition, and I would, and I, you couldn't stop me to obtain that, and I saw that in her. Although it was a different ambition, I still saw that in her, and I respected it. And you could say what you may about her, this and this and that, but I did respect that, and I respected her work ethics that I saw in the audition because the audition was tough it was purposely tough and she wouldn't give up she wouldn't give up and while the other girls were like kind of conking out or going half half ass after a while she kept 100 percent 100 percent I was like wow 
what's interesting when I was reading about her and, and some people compare the two of you as, as prominent Puerto Ricans in the entertainment industry and I was thinking about that point that you're kind of making that it's like kind of like the difference between Muhammad Ali and Michael Jordan like Muhammad Ali was not a very successful brand because he's a spirit and it's difficult to sell a spirit mm. Michael Jordan, Jordan I have no idea what he stands for at all really but he's a magnificent brand that's unquestionable I, I don't really know where JLo is coming from wow. because of her work at all which, which that's okay but I just right. don't whereas with you like I, I know a lot of the issues you stand for even just a very quick glimpse of you it's like your work on behalf of AIDS and, and Puerto Rico and and um, like what we were covering before empathizing for vulnerable groups and you're very politically active as well um, so I don't know it just seemed like an interesting delineation between the two of you and I like this about history and humanity it, it makes me feel happy about it and it's easy to feel down about it um, is that people remembered not for what they have but for what they give if you look at history it's all it always is breaks down to that mm. and look at how much Ali gave people like in terms of hope and all of that with Michael Jordan I don't know I know he had a lot I know he has a lot of money but what do he give I don't know so as soon as he's left his sport it's kind of like what what would I have to talk to him about in an interview about what he's done after his great career I don't know because I don't know what he's interested in right I know he's well, rich right but like Prince, mm -hmm. right? No one, uh, people used to accuse him of not being a charitable person, but yet he was. He just didn't want any publicity for That's it. That's true. You know, so he, he played his role. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you don't know what Michael Jordan has give, given true. or contributed. It's just that he had a different path. You know, I'm talking about Prince now. He had a different path of, of how he was going to give back. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and I think that he just probably wasn't, he probably understood that that's not my soapbox. Right. I'm right. not, that's that's not my lane. I, I wouldn't be as effective at it than somebody else would be. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, you know, I think, I you know, that you're talking about Ali, you know, and you and you were talking about Jennifer. I think in the book, I, I, I didn't even realize it until you're, you're, you're talking about it. I did what Ali did, you know? It's like I, I admitted my, my mistakes. Hmm. You know what I mean? And go back to talking about the darkness that I re that I endured, and that became a part of me because of the home. You know what I mean? Is that my anger and my temper, even at the time at in living color, was very palpable. Hmm. You know, you push a wrong button, and you were it, tough. I was tough, like run for the hills. Yeah. You know what I mean? And sometimes my toughness was loud and volatile, but majority of times my toughness was silent and deadly. Hmm. I would just give you a look like, don't even come here and fuck with me. Hmm. Don't do it. Well, you know? and you, you did depict her confronting you. Mm -hmm. she, she did say, you know, like I'm better than all these girls, and it like as if she she knew what you saw in her. She she knew that she was projecting it as mm -hmm. well. What was what was that like? Somebody, somebody I don't know, confronting that. 
Well, like I, I wrote in a book, I thought it was funny. I was trying not to laugh because there are people who are tough and there are people who act tough. And I didn't feel that she was tough in that way. Okay. She was tough in a different way in, in regards to her tenacity and the blinders that she had on in regards to her, her quest to becoming famous and successful. Um, but it was, it was coming off more like a, a paper tiger, mm. you know? Um, not to interrupt you, but did you, of all the celebrities, I mean, there's Tupac and there's a million, you know, directors and actors, was she somebody that stood out in terms of that ambition? Like, did, did she convey, I don't know, a hunger that stood out? Or was it sort of in line with people who were... No, she stood out. She stood out. She stood out. Yeah, she stood out. But, uh, you know, that one, I, I diffused the situation. Like, when you grow up in a home f with hundreds of kids around and you're confined with those hundred different personalities, you really understand human character. Yeah. You yeah. see it differently. Huh. You know what I mean? So sure. I, can, I can walk in a room and I may not say anything and I may have a smile on my face, but I pretty much assess the entire room. I know who's who and who's what's what, you know. Um, yeah, so I saw it like I didn't. I, I I understood how to diffuse that situation quickly, and and I said, you know what, you're a star, and she just calmed down. Hmm. I think she just needed that validation. Yeah. You know, and that's all right. You could judge it, but that's all right. Hmm. You know. And so you transition from, from the choreography within Living Color. I mean, it seems like White Man Can't Jump was arguably more mainstream success than, than even the Do the Right Thing. I mean, 100%. 100%. Yeah. So what was... What, Thank God for March Madness and the NBA Finals. Because <laughs> 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 that's where I first saw you, was, was White Man Can't Jump. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I got Was that 91? 92. So 13, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that movie just exploded. Exploded. And Wesley Sykes knew it. He knew it? He knew it. We, me and Woody, we were like, this is just fun, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All I cared about was my hair looking good. <laughs> no, I kid, I kid. Not. Um, but um, yeah, he knew it was going to be big. You didn't? You didn't have a sense? I didn't. I didn't have a sense. I just liked the script. And I thought it was fun. And I knew... I knew Ron Shelton, the director, and his work. So I just was, like, really excited. And I didn't know at the time of when I went in to read for it that Woody Harrelson was attached. I, I, I found out when I first went in to read for it, they... I read, the director told me to stop, bring Woody in. I go, I'm saying to myself, Woody who? And in comes Woody House, and I went, oh my God. And all I kept thinking was, oh my God, that motherfucker's so fine, he's so hot, oh my God, oh my God, oh no, he's gonna see me naked, there's nudity in the script. Like, it was like I was having a full-blown anxiety attack, you know? And his first word, he's like, Rosie for Rose, mm. I was like, oh God, and you know, and, and then, uh, the director goes, all right, the chemistry's there. <laughs> and so, you know, but even at that moment, I still didn't, it didn't click. It didn't click. 
But you guys did it. You had mad chemistry. And again, I can't think when I was thinking about it, when is the last time I've seen a mainstream movie offer an interracial couple between a white guy and a, and a Latina? Right. I don't I don't know. I don't know either. And it just was like, okay, yeah, that's great. Thank God for Ron Shelton, right? Because nobody wanted me. The studio didn't want me. They were like, they were saying, Why? no, this is, everybody's going to bug out about the interracial aspect. And then he goes, no, no, they won't. It's basketball. Huh. And he was right. Huh, sports. He was right, right? Sports, the great equalizer, right? Yeah. You know, it's tribal. And it's 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 the tri is sports is the tribe of the human, of, of of the of human beings. You know, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what social and economics you fall into. It's it's you know it's 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 uh, it's it's a world tribe that yeah. enjoys sports. So, I think that's why it worked. I really I really do. And plus our, our undeniable chemistry. You know, and I think I think with Woody, you know, uh, you know, I don't like to talk about his background, but those who know, he had he had he had he had a tough too when he was a kid. So I think that where we were kindred spirits is that we're both like life is great. Hmm. You know, like who who's gonna complain? Life is great. Let's have fun. Let's do this. You know, and but yet we were both serious about our work. But also, we had this joy inside us. And if you meet Woody, I don't know if you ever met no, him. He has an undeniable joy inside of him. Yeah. He has a childlike quality that, of all the movies I've done, I've stayed friends only with a few people. Hmm. And some, because quite honestly, they move on from me. They move on, they get bigger, and then you're like, you never hear from them ever again. You know? Um, others, you, you 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 call once in a while. You see each other. Oh, hi! It's nice to see you. With Woody and I, we don't we we may not speak for an entire year. The phone rings. Hey! It's like if it's yesterday. Wow. See each other. Hey! Like as if it was yesterday. And and um, I think I think that's what that's what connected us. Yeah. It's like. What the hell are we complaining about? This is fantastic. Huh. We're out in the sun. We're doing a movie. Venice Beach. It's about sports. Everybody's funny in it. Yeah. Are you kidding me? And we're getting paid a lot of money. Yeah. This is fantastic. It's fantastic. And so that's that's why I think that's why Do The Right... I mean, excuse me, White Man Can Jump is so much fun. Huh. You know? Because I was going to say, Do The Right Thing, it was tense. I was scared. Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing, you know what I mean? And, but by the time White Man Can't Jump came around and you put Woody Harrelson in front of my face, it's a golden ticket. Hmm. It's just golden, and that's why people love it so much, you know? And Wesley, too. We got in a fight the first day because of freaking Woody. How come? Woody told Wesley something I told him in private about Wesley. Oh, okay. All I said was, I, I don't get it, because all the, all the women were going crazy for Wesley Snipes. White, black, whatever, on set. I said, I don't get it. He doesn't do it for me. He goes, really? I go, yeah, yeah. And he's a little cocky. I don't get it. And he goes, oh, wow. Cut to literally like maybe 20 minutes later. We're, we're about to get in the car scene where we're traveling in the Jimi Hendrix scene. Mm -hmm. Wesley comes over with his chest all puffed out. And he goes, Woody told me what you said. And, you know, for the record, you don't do it for me either. So we're even. I went... Woody! I was like, oh my God. <laughs> he goes, what? 
And he starts laughing. And I'm like, you son of a bitch. And then Wesley looks at me and goes, okay. I go, shut up. He goes, no, you shut up. I go, no, you shut up. And then Woody's cracking up. And then Wesley starts laughing and everything. And and I said, I was like, whatever. He goes, whatever. And I was like, oh, God. And and then I and then I, it looked like I was going to start crying. And then Woody goes, oh, my God, what did I do? I go, get away from me. Get away from me. Now you fucked everything up, you stupid asshole. And then Wesley starts laughing. And I go, you shouldn't be mad at me. You shouldn't be mad at him. And Wesley goes, but you said. I go, but to him. And, and Ron Shelton thought we were rehearsing. <laughs> he thought we were fucking rehearsing. And oh. we just started laughing. And it was click, 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 click all over the place. Wow. And, and Wesley's the same. If I see him today, it will be like yesterday. Hmm. We pick up where we left off. And Wesley, Wesley's a loyal person, too. Yeah. Very, very loyal person. Very was talented it, person. Was that one of the funnest movies you've ever done? Hands down. Hands down the most. most the most. Huh. To date. Huh. And I have a lot of fun. I like to have fun. And to date is, is, is the most fun I've ever had on a movie set. Ever. Wow. Yeah. Um... I guess we're gonna have to get to the view. Um, mm -hmm. You uncomfortable with that subject? Yeah, because one, I have a gag order, so I can't really say too much about it. And we're not it. gonna talk about it much. Okay. You spent a year on the view. Yes, I did. Um, how do you want to approach it? It was an experience. It was an experience. <laughs> Shall we leave it there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what I will say this. I came out with some great friendships. Okay. One notably would be Nicole Wallace, to everyone's surprise. Hmm. We clicked, have completely two opposing views in regards to our politics and how we see the world and how the world should be. Yeah. And we're friends. Our, hu our husbands hang out with each other, we go to dinners, we go to cocktails, we talk on the phone, we text each other, I make her laugh, she makes me laugh. You know, the, the the makeup artist, she's now my makeup artist. No, she didn't do my face or else I'd be flawless right now. Um, but, um, you know, Karen Dubiche, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, mm -hmm. you know. But it was an experience. It was, it was, it was an, ex an experience to say the least. And in regards to the Latino community, I came full circle with them from that experience hmm. because when I first came on the scene they were against me they didn't like my audacity they didn't like the chip on my shoulder they didn't like that I didn't fall in line and when it came to the view they had my back hmm. and they supported me through an open letter to the executives there and these are states women. These are executive, executives, VPs, and presidents of major, major corporations all stood up for me. Hmm. And that was shocking. And it touched my heart. And I was like, wow. And I told my husband, he says, gosh, you're so emotional about this. I said, it's full circle. It's full circle circle and <clears throat> I thank them on the air hmm. I said in mi gente gracias hmm. 
So it was cool. That was real cool. Would you would you go through it again? Would you do it again? No. <laughs> um, as you're talking about the Latino community, uh, what are your feelings with with the ascension of Donald Trump and a lot of his positions? Mm-hmm. You know, on the View, I did state I said Donald Trump is like Andy Griffith's character in Face in the Crowd, mm-hmm. except it's more diabolical. And no one took him seriously. I said we need to take this man seriously. You know, going back to the home. You understand the human spirit. You understand leaders and followers. Yeah. You understand manipulation within a crowd. And you understand the mob. Donald Trump understands all of that. He understands all of it. And I think it's despicable that people are compromising their principles and beliefs and moral integrity for this man, in support of this man. Um, This man has made blatant racist remarks, calling Mexicans rapists. Not all of them, but some of them. Like, it's just so, you know, oh look, there's my African-American. Look at my African-American. Now what he says to a judge, that's the line? Yeah. That's when you go, okay, enough is enough, and then still endorse him. The hypocrisy is abound, and it's scary. It really is scary. I asked somebody, my my cousin Sixto Ramos has his own radio podcast, and one of the people, one of the personalities on his podcast, his name is Vinny, and he's voting for Donald Trump. He's Puerto Rican. And I said, Vinny, how could you support a man who made racist comments about Latin people? Well, you know, that was about Mexicans. I said, you know what? You look like a Mexican to Donald Trump. Don't get it twisted. Right. And first it's the Mexicans, then we're next. Right. Don't get it twisted. And and he goes, yeah, well, he doesn't really mean that. And I go, okay. I said, Vinny, would you be friends with someone who calls black people the N-word and says, well, I don't really mean it? Would you be friends with someone who who spews racial, uh, racist rhetoric? and says, I'm not, I really don't mean it, would you be friends with them? Would you sit down and have dinner with them? No. Then how the hell are you voting for this man for President of the United States? So why is he voting? Why are people voting for him, do you think? Because they are being hoodwinked. Because, just like in the movie Face in the Crowd, Face in the Crowd, to me, means celebrity. That, that movie was about celebrity and the power of celebrity and how gullible people are for celebrities and for a voice, right? A voice that plays on people's fears and, and, and what people don't have. And also, just as hip-hop, right? The hip-hop generation, when hip-hop first started, these rappers were dressing like rock stars. Remember uh, uh, um, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious mm-hmm. Five? And, and uh, they were dressing in leather and, and boots. And, yeah. and, you know, they looked like, you know, they could have been part of Motley Crew, you know, except that they were of color, you know. And they wanted to look like rock stars. Then the next um, wave of rappers wanted to look like um, country club members. That's where the tracksuit came in. 
Because in their minds, if you're rich, you don't have to put on a suit. If you're a filthy rich, then all you have to do is wear a velour tracksuit. Hmm. Right? Yeah. So most poor people vote against their own interests. Right? Yeah. They vote in the interests of the rich because they want to emulate the rich. They want to be rich. So for Donald Trump, that's, that's, that's in their mind, Donald Trump is the benchmark of success. Despite all the hundreds of failures he's had, despite all the lawsuits he's had, um, uh, specifically lawsuits from people who say, poor people, Donald Trump took advantage of me and took my money or did not pay me what I was supposed to be paid, this is the man you want president? Yeah. You're being hoodwinked. You're being bamboozled. He is playing on, on, on your fears. And you know what? He's insulting your intelligence because he's saying they're going to buy it. He, you know, and, and, and it's like, wake up, people. What else does he have to do? He said that if he, could, he would go in and he could shoot somebody and he wouldn't get arrested. He could shoot off a gun and, and he wouldn't be arrested. This is the president? This is someone you want to represent our country just because you're saying, but I need a job? Do you think he's playing a role, or do you think this is who he is? I think both. Huh. And that's what Facing the Crowd was about. Yeah. And, 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 and like the movie, it wasn't until somebody, the Patricia Neal character, turned the microphone on when yeah. the camera wasn't on. And you hear him. And then you hear him. Yeah. I can't wait for that moment with Donald Trump. And you know what? If it does happen, if we find out who this, real, this man really is, I don't think it's going to be good. And what's even scarier, he won't apologize for it. No, he doesn't apologize. You're back to what you were saying. He never apologized for anything he's ever said. Ever. 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 And, and the thing is, is that the, 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 he has the salesman pitch down like nobody else's. Repeat, repeat, repeat until they buy it. Just keep saying something and saying something until it's true. It's the art of persuasion. Yeah. You know, and, and, it, and it scares me. It scares me. It's, it's kind of like this sick cult, this sick dogma that is being created around him. Yeah. You know? Have you met him before? I did meet him before. Huh. He, was, he was very grandiose, he was all this, he was all that. I said hello to him. I go, hi, nice to meet you, you know, and he goes, he goes, nice to meet you too. And he seemed really, really nice and really, really sweet. But there was this condescending tone in him. Huh. Like this cute little thing. Huh. What kind of energy did he have? Like, I watched, the first time I saw you in public, it was a fight and you were beside Don King. There seems to be some similarities between a Don King and a Donald Trump. In my mind. Well, that's a good one. I would say... Because King was molesting you. And I remember yeah, he, he, he oh, yeah, oh, oh, at the uh, uh, Tavoris Cloud fight. fight. He was molesting yeah. you, and I was off to the side. And you looked at me, because I, I was alone, and you were like this. And I was watching, and I was like, what is going through her head right now? Yeah. I think that Don King, although he was a swindler, murderer. He, a murderer, this and this and that, Don King, in a weird way, is much more honest than Donald Trump. As big of a liar as he is, 
as big of a, a you know a crook as he is yeah. was okay whatever he's actually much more honest because when I saw Don King, there was no question in my mind, this man is full of shit. Yeah. When I met Donald Trump, I went, huh. Made me cock my head. I was like, oh, I thought he was one thing, but he's seemingly somewhat of a human being. Huh. And then until the very end, where the condensation came, the, the, the cond, cond, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, condescending. Condescending tone. Yeah. When he walked away, where with Don King, I meet him and he grabs my ass when nobody's looking. That's what was happening. He did? Yeah. And I was like, and I put his hand and I squeezed his hair really, really hard and I put it up there and he started cracking up. Oh my God, I didn't know that. You know what I mean? Like, Don, uh, <clears throat> Donald Trump is a little bit more slicker, where Don King is smarter. He's smarter than Donald Trump. Hmm. Yes. Um, Another distinction between Donald Trump and Don King? Yeah. Donald Trump is a little bitch. Yeah. He's, 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 he's a little... He's a bully. He is a pampered rich kid that probably got bullied in school himself. And he's a bitch. <laughs> and he's a little bitch. He is. He's a little bitch. I've never seen a presidential candidate whine and complain and bitch and moan and this is not fair and then bully someone back more than Donald Trump. Where Don King, he smiles and behind his smiles like fuck you, I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't call Don King a bitch. No. No. He's a ruthless son of a bitch. Yes. But he's not a little bitch by any means. No. You know, so in weird ways, he's actually a stronger person than Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, look what he overcome. I mean, he was meeting presidents all the time. Yeah. I mean, what, what was, where did he get his degree in prison? Yeah. After stomping a guy to death for 20 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. And then oh, the, with, with, the, with the, oh, Thomas Hauser uh, uh, writes about that so well in Black Lights. Did yeah. you ever read that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good book. Um, when I first met him at that, when I was the coin, coin toss girl, right? Yeah. I walk up to him and he's with all his flags. And you know what he said to me? When you there? He goes, Viva Mexico. And I go, wrong country. He goes, oh, wait a minute. Here, I got it. I got it. Viva Puerto Rico. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, and everybody cracked up. Everybody cracked up. I said, wow, wow. And I remember my manager was there. I was like, that's a slick motherfucker. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that could have went really ugly. And... I mean, he's and just, I started laughing myself. I was like, I cannot believe it. Well, he's amazing. I mean, he's a circus. I mean, yeah. he's just a one-man circus. I've, I've never met anybody like... I've only interviewed him once, but I was just like, wow. Yeah, and he doesn't care if you like him or not. Donald Trump cares if you like him or not. Huh. That's where the little bitchiness comes from. <laughs> when he pouts. It's like, yeah. you see, he gets so wounded so easily. Yeah. You know? Where Don King's like, I don't give a fuck if you like me no. or not. Give me my money. Give me my money. Pay me That's this. gangster. Yeah. You know? He's yeah. gangster. Well, where I was going with the, the Cuba thing is to see Obama going over there mm -hmm. and all of these other people flooding in and celebrities, even the Kardashians are going and everything. The other side of that coin, as far as the Cold War is concerned, is Puerto Rico. So it's interesting to me that if capitalism is going to fix Cuba... How's Puerto Rico doing? 
Puerto Rico, what people don't understand um, is the political dynamics of, of the island. It's a commonwealth, it's a territory. Basically, it's a modern day colony. And, you know, um, the taxes over there is 11%. Um, they passed this law in 1984 about, about their debt, how they couldn't restructure their debt. And that's part of the reason why they're in such serious debt. And this whole thing of bonds, of, of people uh, bailing them out through bonds is, has, has become such a debacle. It's just, it's just horrible. And Congress holds all the power. And what is Congress right now? It's a Republican House. Mm. And, and so you can say, well, the, it's, it's the people of Puerto Rico's fault. Really? Do you know what the minimum wage is in Puerto Rico? It's below $5. Mm. Below $5 with a tax rate of 11%, right? The governor of Puerto Rico and the Congress, the U.S. Congress that represents Puerto Rico, have the power to change those things. And they decided not to. And in the bill that's supposed to help them in regards to the debt crisis, it's going to leave the discretion to the governor of Puerto Rico whether to raise the minimum wage or not. And that there's a part of it that says Puerto Ricans under the age of 25 can get paid $4.25 an hour. It, it really is like blaming the victim. Yeah. It really is blaming the victim. And the thing is, is that they are treating Puerto Ricans as second-class citizens. It's like the, the child of a product of an affair that gets treated like shit. Hmm. You know, that's how we're treating. We, we treat Puerto Rico like a stepchild, like a bastard child. It's funny how your accent changes when you're impassioned. Oh, does it? Yep. Oh, that's embarrassing. It's not embarrassing. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just interesting. Um, two things I didn't get to. One is a quick one. Were you actually dating Tupac Shakur or was he your friend? It was my friend, April Walker. Ooh, did I say her name? Oh, well, it's okay. It's fine now. He, he wrote a poem about her, so it's fine. It was my girlfriend, April Walker, of Walkerwear, who actually designed Mike Tyson's, uh, one of his ring walk outfits, where he really? had the ripped, the whipped s s sweatshirt that was just like overhead and had a big W on it. Oh, yeah, 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 that was my, yeah, she, that, was, that was April Walker, and she was my good friend from Brooklyn. Huh. Like, like, when we first met, everybody thought we were going to fight, you know? You know, so uh, they were like, oh, you guys go after the same boyfriends. You guys are going to fight. We didn't fight. I was like, oh, this girl is fly as hell. Um, uh, yeah, but, he, yeah, he, he was dating her off and on. And, and what had happened was is that this rapper dissed me, who I was dating, who was supposed to be my date to Sotre Music Awards. Hmm. <laughs> And he said, he finally came clean, I can't go, I can't be on television next to you, my girlfriend will flip out. I go, your girlfriend? <laughs> ah, you son of a bitch, click. Ring, ring. What up, it's Pac. I said, oh, blah, 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 blah. He goes, yo, fuck that nigga, fuck him. I'm coming over, I go, don't use the N-word. And he just started cracking up. And he goes, no, we gonna go up in there like me and you dating, make his blood boil. Oh, wow. And that's what happened. That's what happened. 
because you two were like you were saying with Woody, like it was obvious you guys had chemistry, but you and Tupac clearly had a lot of chemistry. We had a lot of chemistry. Yeah. We had a lot of chemistry. And then when we were when we were in the limo ride, we were getting like blazed. I mean, he 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 had he had a joint, and I didn't really smoke. Like I was yeah. an occasional smoker, right? <laughs> and he's like, "You want to smoke?" I said, "We have to be on camera." He goes, "Exactly." So my girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> Julie was in the limo ride with us, and we're getting blazed and blazed, and everything. And I was crying, and I put my head on on his shoulder, and he put his arm around me. I looked up at him, and I was like, "Is this motherfucker gonna kiss me?" Uh-huh. And and we kind of kissed. And I looked at him, he looked at me, he goes, mm-mm. And I went, oh, snap. And I started laughing, he goes, you're the type of girl that you marry. Huh. You're quality. He said, I'd rather just stay your friend. I don't want to fuck that up. Whoa. Tupac. That's, Tupac. That's pretty cool. And I was like, should I feel dis or like, or like complimented? And he goes, complimented 100%. He goes, you're my sister. He said, remember that. You're the girl that gets the ring. Hmm. You never be the side chick. I was like, oh shit. And you've been that, right? I've been that. Yeah, I've been that. And and uh, and he was great. He was great. It was it was a terrible night for me though, because <laughs> yeah. I didn't know he was screwing all these recording artists, all these females, and they all wanted to kick my ass. Uh. You know. And he thought it was funny because he knew my temper. You know, one girl got in my face too close and I and everything and she was talking to him while looking at me we were seated in the front row and she's like oh that's what you like oh you like the girl with the good hair like Beyonce Becky with the girl hair right and uh you like that bitch and I said and I looked at her and I said one call me bitch again I'm gonna be up in your face she went I said two move right now, because if I get out of the seat, I'm gonna beat the fuck out of you, right? Tupac starts cracking up, and I said, shut up, it ain't fucking funny. I said, you got all these bitches fucking here fucking disrespecting my fucking ass, and he fell out, literally fell out of the seat laughing, and the girl's standing there, and she starts crying, and I'm looking at her like, five, four, (laughs) three, two, one, move, and she she walks away. gets up, jumps up and down, and high-fives me. And I go, I'm never going anywhere with you ever again. <laughs> and we both start laughing. And he goes, let's go back out. You need to smoke some more. I was like, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, and that was the night I hooked him up with um, Madonna. Huh. He hooked up with Madonna? I didn't know that. Yeah, she was like, she asked me to hook her up. And I went over to him and I said, yo, Pac, Madonna wants to get hooked up with you. He's like, word, hook that shit up. Wow. I was like, all right. Madonna, Pac, Pac, Madonna. I Have fun. I didn't know you were friends with her. What do you make of her right now? Like, do you think it's hard for her, having been famous for so long, pushing 60? Is she? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, like Prince. I mean, what was Prince, 57 or something? Oh, yeah, that's true. Um... I don't feel sorry for Madonna. I think Madonna has 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 had a very very long career. I think she still has a career. It may not be what she wants or what she's used to, but it's still on on a, on a high high level of of uh, stardom. You know, she's still you know super A list. Oh, yeah. And I didn't mean to frame it that way, like oh. in a negative way. I just meant just I don't know. What do you make of her? No, I I just think that you know she she 
she's like Cher, you know, Cher just admitted, I'm vain and, and aging sucks. And it does, you know what I mean? And I'm not mad at them. I'm not mad at them for them. I think, musca- I, I think uh, plastic surgery is the new mascara. I really do. Huh. Yeah, I do. And I don't, you know, and some people could wear makeup horribly wrong. <laughs> You know, and the same thing with plastic surgery, you know, but with all the pressures that women have to endure in regards to how they are, how they look, um, and your looks do affect your career, specifically in the entertainment industry, you know, it's hard for me to judge, you know what I mean? You know, and have you felt those pressures? You mentioned them early on. Yeah, I felt those pressures, but I, not on that level. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I think I felt those pressure. I, 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 I still feel the pressure, but I, I, I think, I think I, I'll have those thoughts of insecurities. I'll have those thoughts. Maybe I should. Maybe I shouldn't. And then I go, oh, boxing's on, and I get totally distracted. It just—it's not that important to me at the end of the day. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's like, oh, okay, and you know, and like, in this in this past month, I got three offers to play grandma. Huh. Three offers. In each of the three offers, I turned down two. I'm going to take one. Each of the three offers, they go a young. 40 year old grandma and I was like ooh yeah alright yeah hot you know <laughs> you know so you know it's just you know and I and I think about it I mean that's why I got bangs cause I'm scared to get Botox so I call these my Botox bangs cause it hides the you know wrinkles in my forehead but am I vain yes I'm, I'm Puerto Rican you know what I mean? Like, we, looks mean a lot to us, and people don't like to admit it, but it's true. Everybody that I talk to doing the interview still says she's gorgeous. Oh. Every Everybody. Madonna? No, you. Oh, me? Yeah, oh. you. Madonna's a different story, which is not going in this, but no, everybody still madly has a crush on you. Oh, really? Oh, wow, that's cool. You make me blush. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just... Um, yeah, Lou DeBella, he goes, Rose, everyone says you look gorgeous. I don't know what's happening tonight. We, the last fight I went at the Barclay, uh, Deontay Wilder fight, and I said, it's the bangs. He goes, what? I go, it's my Botox bangs. He laughed so hard. He said, you're stupid. I said, but smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. But I didn't know that, but that, that's cool. That's cool to hear, but you know. Um, what, just the last thing I just forgot to cover it was was of course and, and you put it in your book was was your your mother the the really unfortunate unfortunate circumstances surrounding her death and and that you've become such a big advocate on behalf of HIV victims and AIDS victims. Mm-hmm. So I just wondered, like, you know, with this this woman who bore you and yet you're put in a home and and have to endure so much, like that must have been. Just a, one of the biggest things you've ever confronted from the sound of it. Yeah. Yeah, that was really hard, and it was really horrible to see somebody waste away, waste away so slowly and so painfully. And to tell me that I had to forgive her because she knew she was dying. Yeah. Like, that's, that's like, really, really tough, and... No one should die that way. No one should die that way, and I—I I don't like to talk about it too much. Okay. Um, we, that, we don't have that, to talk about it if you don't want to. Okay. okay. But I—I'll I, just say this: the world 
whatever your re religious belief or moral beliefs are, but it's weird that the fight against AIDS came to me before my mother got contracted AIDS. Oh, okay. You know, and I didn't understand it. I was like, why, why do I feel this conviction in my heart that I have to stand up for this? There's so many other things I want to stand up for. Why this? N nothing affected me on a personal level, just but being in New York, you know, yeah, during yeah. that time and being in the club scenes and, and everything and seeing everything that was happening and stuff. Uh, and then my best friend died. Yeah. Uh, and then my mother got it. I was like, wow. You know, and then I, I remember telling one of my activist friends, I said, that's why you have to listen to your heart. Because if I didn't pay homage to that conviction that was burning inside my heart, things would have been differently. Things would have worked out differently. Because hmm. I knew where to send my mother. I knew, you know, even though she kept refusing help, you know. But, you know, I was able to go inside the hospitals because they knew I was an AIDS activist and say, this is my mother, please give her the best of care. You know, yeah. stuff, but unfortunately, anyway. Well, there was, um, I think Fran Leibowitz made this comment that I always thought was fascinating about AIDS taking away the first three rows of all the top shows. That the people who were the most knowledgeable and educated in theater and music and culture were the first ones to get laid. And so they were the first ones to get AIDS. So oh, yeah. everybody who's in the back row moved up. And oh. that's why you see this blandness with a lot of performances and, and film and stuff like that. It's become a lot less edgy right. because there aren't those people in the fr first few rows to be like right. the discerning critics in a way. Right. I just thought it was oh, an wow. interesting way to look at AIDS. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's true, unfortunately. Yeah. Tourist Information is presented by The Ring, is produced by Dolgen Digital Media, Jorge Alacon Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler.